get all my stuff up here. Children had a special place in Jesus' heart. And he said, let the little children come unto me. And so I'd like to have the little children come up and help me this evening just a little. Uh, so those that feel comfortable coming up, uh, I don't know what ages you all do that, but uh, come on up here, sit on the front bench here. I have a little story, and then uh, I want you to help me sing a song that's related to the story. Let's sing that song, Wise Man's Own. 
The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down as the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood firm. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down as the floods came up. The rains came down as the floods came up. The rains came down as the floods came up. And the house on the sand was fast. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the blessings will come down. The blessings will come down as your prayers go up. The blessings will come down as your prayers go up. The blessings will come down as your prayers go up. So build your life on the Lord. All right, so let's remember that to be wise men, wise people, wise boys and girls, we need to obey. Obey our parents, obey our school teachers, obey found out I didn't know that song quite as good as I thought I did. Turn with me in your hymn, in the songs, hymns of the church, the purple songbook, to hymn number 699. Familiar song. I want us to sing this song prayerfully, earnestly, mindfully, and internalize the phrases of this song and seek God's face while we sing this song. Lord, I am fondly, earnestly longing into God. Thank you. Powerful song. Very powerful song. Message tonight, and we titled it The Most Important Factor. The Most Important Factor. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, the little story and the song that the children sang this morning was kind of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And 
What I want to look at tonight is the very last thing that Jesus taught us in that Sermon on the Mount, the last subject that he touched on before his conclusion. So I'd like to dive in here at verse 15. But the real focus is from 21 to 23. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs or thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye worker, you work, ye that work iniquity. Jesus illustrated his feelings about our obedience with his teaching with the following story, and that's what the children shared with us. Jesus said, if you want to be a wise man or a wise person, not only is it good enough just to hear, his doctrine or hear his teaching, we also need to do our actions. There needs to be action following the teaching. And that's that he clinched it then with that story and that song that we just sang with little children, which, which this last two things, verses 15 to 20, he says that, we can identify fruit or a certain variety of tree by the fruit. Probably most of you could be able to tell an apple tree by what it looks like in the bark, even while it's growing in the summertime or in the spring. But the variety of apple is more or less determined by the taste of the mature fruit in the fall whether it's a golden delicious or I don't know my apple trees that well, um, versus some other yellow-looking apple. Uh, you could take two different varieties, and, and they look the same maybe, but their taste is going to be different. And so the, the, the mature fruit gives kind of the, the actual identity of, of the tree. And that's kind of what he's saying here in verse 15 to 20. And so there again, it's the, it's the fruit, it's the action that gives proof to the DNA of the, of the trunk. And then he goes on again in verses 21 to 23 and he kind of carries his thought just a little bit further. But the thing that gripped my heart a number of years ago when I was preaching a series of messages through the Sermon on the Mount I got to this this passage of scripture and I ended up preaching two parts without really intending to 
because I didn't have enough time to do justice the first time I preached the message on this section of Scripture. And I thought, well, I'll just leave the rest for Part B. Well, when I got to Part B, I went back and re-preached some on the, on, the first, on the first message, simply because there was something that came to my attention as I was pondering and, and meditating on this passage of Scripture, and it really gripped my heart, and that's what I want to share with you tonight. But he says, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know what all that means to you or if you give this much thought or not. But this word, Lord, Lord, has the idea of ascribing to Christianity. Jesus, your master, master, is basically in the, in the Greek wording. That's kind of what it'd be. Master, master, teacher, teacher. In other words, this, there's a certain level of reverence and respect that comes with this type of term. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. What did we just get done saying, singing with the young children about this thing of obedience? There's, there's a, some thinking that I'd like to say is just out there, but sadly to say I hear it too much in our circles, that it's only in the heart that counts. And that's, my friends, that's kind of where it all starts, but it can't just stay in the heart. And the other is true. If it's not happening on the outside, it's quite likely that it's not inside. Then I'd like for us to think a little bit, the very last phrase of verse 23, and we're going to be jumping around here just a little bit, the very last phrase of verse 23, ye that work iniquity. That word iniquity, does that apply to us or doesn't it? And maybe you haven't given this much thought either. Until I studied this, I thought, well, Jesus is talking about, you know, people that claim to be Christians, but yet they're not living the full doctrine, that kind of thing. And so I'm pretty good. I, I, ordain, I, I adorn the doctrine. I'm, I'm living the scriptures, and so this is not applicable to me. What gripped my heart before I preached the second message in my home congregation was I saw myself in this picture. The word iniquity comes from a Greek word that we would more or less understand with lawlessness. And this is what gripped my heart. Do we do we know what lawlessness is? Oh, well yeah, I'm I'm you know, I'm a law abiding citizen. I Make sure I stop at all the stop signs and and uh, do what I'm supposed to do. And so I, I'm I'm a lawless. I'm I'm not a lawless person. I'm a law-abiding person. Pretty good. Pretty good person. By the way, you all have some stop signs that somehow I don't see. I was going to Iowa to have supper with um, Curtis and. 
I, I, I saw the stop ahead sign, and somehow I got distracted between the, the warning sign and the actual stop sign. And the next thing I knew, I was going through the stop sign at about 55 mile an hour. I'm like, whoa, and I saw the stop sign just kind of as I was streaking past. I'm like, oh. I was glad there was no coming. There was a semi that was slowing down to take the turn, but he was far enough away that didn't pose any threat. But the, the problem was, it was there was a cornfield I couldn't see around until I was almost through the stop line, stop sign. Was I a lawless person? Was I a lawless person? If the policeman would have saw me, he probably would have thought I was lawless. It maybe would have stopped me and, and said I was lawless. But was I a lawless person? I was thinking about this in relation to the message on my way from supper to here. Was I a lawless person? What is lawlessness? Someone want to supply a definition? Got you scared. Lawlessness is when I know what I should be doing. I know what is expected. And I say, you know what? I'm going to do something else anyway. That's lawlessness. Now, back to my illustration the Lord gave me. Was I lawless? I don't think I was. I had no intentions whatsoever to run the stop sign. I knew it was coming because I, I do remember seeing the stop ahead warning sign. But for some, like I said, for some reason, I got distracted. You know, I, I come from a, a land where we don't have a lot of cornfields and machinery and that kind of stuff is not part of our countryside down there. And I don't, don't know if there was a combine or something working in the field and I was distracted or whatever. And it just went poof. And all was turned out okay. But I, I don't think I was lawless because a lawlessness is, yeah, I know that stop sign is there, but I don't care. I'm going to go through it anyway. That's lawlessness. Where does lawlessness start? In Eve's situation in Genesis 3. When did she, was she a lawless, the first question I have is, was she a lawless person? Did she know what God expected? Yeah, she knew what God expected. When Satan came to her and said, did God really say? He says, well, yeah, he said. He said thus and thus and thus, and then he add, she added something that God never said. Did you ever, did you ever know that? God never told them to not touch the fruit. But she said, along that, along with that, is with, with what God did say. And so God, so she knew what was expected. And somehow or another, she sidestepped what God said, what God expected, and did something contrary. She was a lawless person. When did she become lawless? When she took the fruit? 
Or was it while she was contemplating what Satan had said, as she started thinking, you know what? Hmm. Maybe God doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe, maybe God is withholding some information. Maybe, I don't know what all she thought. I submit to you that that's when she became a lawless person. When she, when she had convinced herself that it was okay to disobey. That's when she became a lawless person. The story of Jonah. Was he a lawless man? Did he know what God expected of him? Yeah. He knew what God expected. And there again, when did he become a lawless person? When he got on that ship to go to Tarsus? Is that when he became a lawless person? No, he came a lawless person long before that. When he, when he understood what God said, and he said, you know what? I'll go on a mission field. I'll go on a mission trip. I'll go preach the gospel in Tarsus. I, and, and here again, I do not know what Tarsus had that Nineveh didn't have. And why he thought Tarsus was going to be a better place for preaching the gospel versus going to Nineveh. But somehow he had convinced himself that, well, I, I don't want to go to Nineveh, but I'll go to Tarsus. Will a whole big pile of an act of goodness supersede or overcome or outdo or somehow justify one act of disobedience? What do you think? One act of disobedience is still going to be lawlessness. And so in Jonah's situation, he could, he could have preached in Nineveh, he could have preached in five other cities, and it would have never justified one act of lawlessness, one act of disobedience. So the question is that Jesus is giving us, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils? And in thy name they done many wonderful things. And I will profess unto them, depart from ye, ye that work lawlessness, iniquity. The question is, when you draw your last breath, what is the only thing that's going to matter? What is the only thing that's going to matter? The only thing that's going to matter is whether I've been obedient to the teachings of Jesus. And one particular facet I want to think about tonight words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 9 verses 23 and 25 he says this If any man will come after me let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake the same shall save it. 
For what is a man's advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? So this thing of cross-bearing, taking up his cross and following me. And then in chapter 14, verses 25 and 27, he says some very similar words. And there was a great multitude around him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Is there any question in our minds tonight that taking up our cross, cross bearing, is an important factor to being Christian, to being what God would want us to be, to being, to being approved by God. Is, or do we have a question here? Jesus very plainly said that if you, if you doth, do not bear your cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. It's, to me, it's fairly clear, this thing of cross-bearing. And so let's think about this cross-bearing thing just a little. And obviously, we don't necessarily, at least in my thinking, carrying my cross is something that's maybe a little bit foreign. We don't have public executions today by hanging people on crosses like they did in Jesus' day. That was one of the cruelest forms of execution there was in their day uh, for some very serious criminals. And so Jesus was crucified or Jesus was treated as a very bad criminal. The next stage worse was would be just be pitched alive into Gehenna. And I don't know, we'll see how the Lord leads. We might talk about Gehenna one of these evenings too. Um, the doctrine of hell. But anyway, we'll see how the Lord leads. So what did cross-bearing mean for Jesus? When Jesus was carrying that cross down Main Street, Jerusalem, going out through the city gates, out to the hill of Golgotha, what did it mean for him? Death, right? He was carrying his death own death sentence. It's a little bit like if we would have an execution today and that the person that was convicted and was, was being executed would carry his own lethal drugs as he went and go sit in the, in the, be strapped on the gurney or whatever they do. I don't know how they do it. But a little bit like he would be carrying his own medicine or his own, his own form of death. Death. Death to who? Who was he carrying this cross for? Himself, wasn't it? And so it was death to himself. He was carrying his own death as he walked down Main Street, Jerusalem. His own death. Did Jesus have a choice? You think Jesus could have dropped his cross and run away and escaped it all? Well, he was surrounded by Roman soldiers. Um... So maybe in that respect, no, he didn't have a chance. I don't know if he was tied by a rope to one of the soldiers or not. I, I don't know. But did Jesus have a choice? 
Yeah, he had a big choice. And that choice was made long before he got to the cross bearing, carrying, carrying his cross down Main Street, Main Street, Jerusalem. That choice was made back in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he, when he wrestled with what he knew was coming, he wrestled. He says, Father, is there some other way? And he had that he had that struggle, that argument, that discussion with his father three times. And every one of those three times he came to the conclusion, he says, Not my will, but thine be done. He surrendered himself to the cross at that point. He was no longer a lawless person. He submitted, he became obedient unto the death. Jesus said, if you're not willing to carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple. And there's going to be many in that day. Lord, Lord, I preached many a sermon. I stood behind the the pulpit and preached to lots of people. I taught all kinds of Sunday school lessons. I was superintendent in the church. I led singing. And you could go on and on and on and on. He's going to say, I don't know you. You worker of lawlessness. There's things that I expected of you and you chose to do something else. Simply because I wasn't willing to say not my will, but thine be done. Is your self-life dead? We sang in that song... I think it was the second verse. Let me find it here. Dead to the world would I be, O Father, dead unto sin, alive unto thee. Crucify all the earthy within me, emptied of sin and self may I be. Is that where we're at tonight? Completely dead to the world, dead to self, dead to whatever. That, ter- that phrase, crucify all the earthy within me, I was pondering on that, wondering, was well, that theologically correct? Who's, who's supposed to do the crucifying? Is, is it Jesus to be to do, doing the crucifying? I mean, if you look at the song, that's what it says. To the Lord. Or that's what it seems to me. Crucify, it's almost as if we're asking the Lord to crucify all the earthy within me. I suggest crucifixion is my job. And that supports a large part of Scripture. When when we talk about um, crucifying self, Paul's writing, Paul says, mortify the flesh. Whose job is that? It's my job to mortify the flesh. It's my job. This past Sunday evening, in the closing night of our revivals at our church, our preacher didn't necessarily say this, but did you know that committing suicide is biblical? When you, when you kill yourself, that, isn't that suicide? 
And so I'll let you I'll let you think about that just a little. Suicide is is a biblical term. More in the more in the spiritual sense, and crucifying self and putting death, self to death is is one way of saying committing suicide. But anyway, you you think about that. But that's but that's true. We need to kill self. We must kill self. That's what Jesus is saying. We must kill self. So is yourself like dead? I'd like to put an illustration up on the board that came to me when I preached that second message that that really helped me understand a little bit what Jesus is talking about and, and put this in some perspectives. Most of, the most important organ or part of our bodies is what? What's that? Our heart? Our brain? Okay, we've got two suggestions. I was trying to see how, I was trying to figure out how I'm going to respond to Brother Dwight's our heart. Um, you can have a heart transplant. You can take on someone else's heart, but I haven't yet heard of anybody having a brain transplant. And woe be unto us when that starts happening. You'll start thinking different, right? So the brain is the most important part of our body. <clears throat> Not the great greatest drawer here, but this piece of gray matter that's up here is our brain. What do we do with the brain? What do we do it? Do we take it out and play with it? School children, what do you do with your brain? You think, right? That's that's what you think with. Alright, so our thoughts. <clears throat> Or we could call it our cognition. The word cognition sounds like a bunch of gears, right? You have cogs in there kind of turning around. Did teacher ever tell you, you know, got some cogs up there kind of around? Yeah. Cognition. That's what we think with. <clears throat> what do we, what happens when we think? Not sure. When we think jumping for joy, what do you think happens? We jump, right? Can you jump for joy if if you're not thinking that way? Not hardly. Not hardly. Can you, well, we'll go on there. So our, our, our brains, our thoughts control our actions. So this is our action. Our thoughts control our actions. Or volition, another term we could is our volition. And we have, we have scriptures to support this type of connection. We have... Proverbs 4, let me get my... Proverbs 4, verse 
Proverbs 4 says, um, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. And this goes back to, that's why I was, I was uh, trying to figure out how I was going to answer Dwight's suggestion as far as the heart. Proverbs 4 talks about the heart. Now, is the heart that we have in Proverbs 4 the red thing that's pumping in the center of our bodies, pushing the blood around? Uh, no. No. So we'll come back. Dwight, Dwight was probably more correct than he thought maybe he was. But um, and maybe I took you wrong. I don't know. Um, the heart is important. The spiritual heart is. But it's our heart. The, our thoughts are controlling our action. We have Mark 7, 20-23 that talks about Jesus said that the what comes out of a man that defiles a man for, for from within, out of the heart of men proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, cutches, and then there's a number of things. And it has to do with the actions. Every one of those is an action word. And Jesus said, out of the heart of man proceeds these actions. In Galatians 5, 19 to 24, we have the works of the flesh. And there's a whole list of things. And every one of those is an action word. It has to do with what our bodies are doing. And so we have scripture that supports the concept that our, in quotes, hearts, and we'll get there in a little bit, our, our hearts are producing action. Well, after we have action, we have something else. We have a thermometer, right? We have our emotions that come out of our actions. And we have good emotions and we have bad emotions. And there are negative emotions. Um, you tell a lie, what do you feel? Do you feel good when you tell a lie? Um, you steal something, you feel good? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, did they, were they still in a perfect environment? Everything was perfect, right? Perfect weather, perfect temperature, perfect trees, perfect food, perfect... I don't know if the relationship was still perfect at that time or not. But what did they feel? And we could go down a long list of guilt, fear. And we have people today that deal with anxieties and guilts and fears, and they say, well, if I would just have a better environment, it would take care of my problems, friends... That might be true, but probably not. Probably not. There's too often we skirt we skirt something when we go down that road. And if we have good good emotions, if you um, get a hundred percent on your test at school, does that make you happy or sad? If I got a hundred percent when I was in school, I would be jumping for joy because that was a rarity. And there's other things. And so our emotions are simply a thermometer or an indicator of what's happening in real life. But there's a connection that goes a little bit deeper than that. And then we come back and we think 
We think about our emotions. Well, that that lie that I told you didn't make me feel very good, so am I going to do it again or am I going to stop to lie? See, we're, now we're thinking about what just took place and whether I won't tell another lie. And, and so, oh, well, that didn't make me feel very good. And so it made me feel guilty. And so I'm not going to tell any more lies. And that thinking, again, is up here. And so then we come back down to our actions. That's a cycle that happens in our lives day in and day out, all day long, without us even trying to make it happen. We, we operate in that cycle. All right, back to Dwight's heart. Where is that heart that he's talking about, that Proverbs 4 is talking about? Out of the heart. Where is that? Anybody here scientific enough to tell me where that's at? You went to biology school and you identified where that, in quote, spiritual heart was at. I don't know either where it's at. Science hasn't told me. And so I'm going to I'm going to tell you something that science hasn't quite figured out. Okay? I'm going to suggest that that heart is up in here, the center of our brain. Because the way we think in a spiritual plane is directly connected to our nervous system. We talked about lying. If I choose to lie, it's going to affect my fear level. It's going to affect my guilt level, and those are our emotions. That's part of the nervous system. In the middle of that heart is a... Let me get a little different color here. There's, there's a little room in the middle of that heart that I'm going to come over here and explode. And we're going to take a little bigger picture of what's in the center of that heart. In that room, there's a throne. And on that throne, there's someone sitting on it. So let's put someone sitting here. He's got a scepter in his hand, got a crown on his head. Let's put a little smile here. And he's king. He's king of that throne room, throne room, and he's barking orders and things are happening to his liking. And in front of this king, there's someone on their hands and knees worshiping that king. And this person here is self. It's myself worshiping something. We have one of two options of who is sitting on that throne. When I was born, and two hours after I was born, I... Here again, I'm going down imagination road because I don't remember. I, I hollered. I'm hungry, Mom! Right? Those of you that have children uh, know what I'm talking about. And... And I didn't care about how mom felt. I didn't care whether she was worn out or, or refreshed. I didn't care whether she was awake or tired. I didn't care. The only thing I cared was myself. And I'm hungry. And I let the world know that I was hungry. 
Two hours later, I did the same thing because I had a dirty diaper. Two hours later, I did the same thing because I was tired. You get the drift. Self is on the throne from birth. And so, when we are born, this is self as well. And so we have self-worship. And according to scriptures, that is identified as idolatry. Because we're worshiping something other than God. So we say that's normal for a, a three-day-old baby to be selfish. If they didn't cry, when they needed their needs met, we would say something is wrong. And that would be right. And by the way, my mom tells me that she had to wake me up to feed me. She had to wake me up. I was kind of one of those lethargic babies, I guess. And so I don't know. I don't remember a three-year-old that throws himself down in the grocery store because and throws a temper tantrum because he can't have some candy. Who's on the throne? Self is on the throne, right? And we make a big scene in the middle of the grocery store because I can't have what I want. And mom is threatening, or the parents are threatening this little three-year-old, well, when you get home, you're going to... You finish out the story. We all seen it. Self is on the throne. And we kind of scratch our chins just a little as a poor child. Self is still on the throne. You take a six-year-old that's not quite as bad, but does likewise. The three-year-old we would term as a brat. The six-year-old, I'm not sure what we would term it as. How about a 12-year-old? A 12-year-old that kind of whines and connives and maybe does some lying and whatever to get what they want. Who's on the throne? Is that, is that normal? We call them arrogant or ignorant or something like that. And let's jump another six years. Let's take an 18-year-old that kind of well still lives there. Who's on the throne? Jesus said, if you're not willing to take your cross, if you're not willing to put self to death, you cannot be my disciples. Self must be crucified on the cross so that Jesus can rule as supreme. <clears throat> in order for Jesus to be supreme and for Jesus to sit on that throne. Self must be crucified. I suggest to you that that's what Jesus was telling his group of people when he said, there's going to be many in that day that say, Lord, Lord, have I not done this and have I not done that? In the name of Jesus, did all these wonderful things. He'd say, I don't know you. Because you're still a lawless person. I knew that I needed to crucify self. I knew that I needed to give myself up. I knew I needed to surrender. But I don't want to. Lawlessness. 
not my will, but thine be done. Would the congregational life different, be different here if we all would have the not my will, but thine will be done attitude? Would, would there be any changes here? You see the battle, another, another part of the picture is, is the battle. The battle is here. I'm getting too, too much with the same color. Our battle is here between good and evil. Between God and Satan. Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember, we want to be Christ followers. We want to be Jesus people. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and was found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so if we want to be Jesus' people, we must be willing to put ourselves to death, even in the life of the church. Yes, we can have discussion, we can share our thoughts on a certain particular item, but when there's a vote taken, discussion's over with. It's time to no longer kick and fight and fuss and fume like a three-year-old that hasn't got his way and get behind the program and support it. Not my will, but thine be done. Or the forces of evil... In Isaiah... 14 verses 12 to 15 we have the reason why Lucifer was cast out of heaven you, do you know why Lucifer was cast out of heaven let me read something to you Luke, uh, Isaiah 14 12 to 15 how are you fallen from heaven O Lucifer son of the morning how are you cut down to the ground you are you are weakened you who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, and I want us to catch this, it's not something that he said with his mouth, he has said with his heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the ground of mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, I will be like the most high. I will, I will, I will, I will. And I suggest to you that every one of those, God had drawn the line the, the line in the sand and says, Satan, or Lucifer, he wasn't Satan there yet. He said, Lucifer, this is as far as you can go. And Satan in his heart said, I will, I will, I will go beyond that.
I will. And so Satan wants us to get us to think that I have rights. I will do thus and thus. And I don't care who says I can't. That's what Satan wants us to think. That's what he got Eve to think. And he's bound to determine to get every one of us to think the same way. But Jesus, what's the way of Jesus? When something didn't go his way, what did he say in Gethsemane? In the garden? Not my will, but thine be done. I don't know if, if Jesus' experience there in the Gethsemane grips us or not. But Jesus didn't want to go through with the execution. He didn't want that. The battle isn't where the line is drawn. It is in my willingness to surrender self and submit. The real battle takes place in the mind, not on issues down here. We will not have victory in our actions until we have victory in our thoughts. So the question I want us to consider this evening is who is king of your life? Is it possible that we can say Jesus is Lord, but not have him Lord or not be crucified in every area? And I believe that is possible. And that's what gripped me so hard when I really put some uh, consideration into what Jesus said. And this diagram came to me because my flesh wants to rise up and be somebody, declare something. I want my rights. You go down the list. Back to the original question. What is going to be the most important thing that will matter when our hearts take it last beat? The most important thing that's going to matter is who is sitting on that throne. Who is sitting on that throne? I don't know where you're at tonight with who is sitting on your throne. Don't know you that well, but that's beside the point. God knows who's sitting on that throne. And it's quite possible you know who's sitting on that throne. So I'm going to extend an invitation tonight. And if you see yourself as positionally opposed against the will of God regarding the who is sitting on your throne, I invite you to crucify self and repent. And if you want to pound a stake tonight and become victorious and get serious with who is sitting on the throne, I invite you to come forward and someone will pray for you. Let's pray.